even when we first moved to Canada, I was, you know, I was making a very small amount of money and I didn't know how we were going to pay the bills. And what I did at that mm -hmm. point was I wrote to everybody in my global network and said, I'm struggling to pay the bills. I need help. Yeah. You guys know what I can do. Would anybody offer me some work, you know? So when people come to me and say kind of like, what was your five-year plan or how did you, you know, like, did you get, you know, like two years of money in the bank and then you went for it? I was like, oh, no, no, that's never been my possibility. I just kind of said, oh, I think I have enough work for the next six months. You're listening to Find the Outside, the podcast. I'm Tim Merry. And I'm Tuesday Ryanhart. This week on the podcast, we are digging in how to do work like ours and make a buck. How do you actually, <laughs> right? How do you make a living, right? right? Doing this crazy thing called leading change and supporting people from the outside coming in to get big change done. How does that, how can that be something that pays your bills, but also allows you to lead significant change in the world? That's the stuff we're cooking on. I feel like it's been a question since the very beginning for me, Choose this, this basic this basic question of like, how can I uh, do what I love and make a good living and contribute to the world around me? Do you know what I mean? I feel like I've had that question since I first ever thought about the fact I was going to have to get a job. You know oh I mean? my gosh. My first, ever, first ever job. What was your first ever job? Okay. I want to tell you about my first ever job, which I'm pretty sure was teaching gymnastics to little people. Um, mm -hmm. But I also want to say like, again, again, with the differences between us, like this has been my question ever since I thought about working. Like that never, like there's that never <laughs> entered <laughs> my worldview oh, at yeah. all, at all. I mean, I just never, you know, as I was coming up, it wasn't like, oh, how do I find a job that fulfills me? It was really like, how do I make a living? How will I make a yeah. living? That was like more yeah. the question. And it was, I mean, I think I've always done meaningful work, but I just, there's two things. One is that I love that you were that you asked yourself that question. And I'm just realizing the differences between us, probably just like class and education wise that like that you were able to ask that question from an early age. Because I don't know that I asked that question for years. Right. I went into meaningful work, but it wasn't in that way um, in my head. But I want to tell you about my first job, which was. Whoa, teaching whoa, no, wait, 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 because you just you just dive straight in. Let's come to the fun job. bit. <laughs> OK, because the, because actually I found I actually found this been like some surrendering of my belligerence around this as I've got older. Oh, in the, in the I actually felt like early on I was entitled. Right. I felt like <gasps> I was entitled to oh. be doing something I loved and making a good oh. living, you know? I felt like that was an, I, not only did I feel entitled that I should be doing that, I felt like everybody should be doing that, mm. you know? I felt like that, I, mm. you know, my feeling was like, no, that this is this should be a standard that we all strive for, you know? And then, oh. um, and then of course, you, you know, it wasn't as easy as that. No. <laughs> <laughs> they got out in the big wide world and mummy and daddy weren't like, no, we're going to pay all your bills for you and look after you. That wasn't how my mum and dad operated. Um, and so uh, so it was like, oh, crap, I've got to pay the bills. What am I going to do? You know, and I did all kinds of jobs as a student. They hadn't, you know, and and, yeah. uh, and as a and as a young man and we can get into some of our crazy jobs because I think that'd be fun. Um, mm -hmm. But it's definitely, you know, especially when I had kids. Right. It, yeah. You know, there was a, there was a point at which, and we'll get into this later, I'm sure, where like you know you're actually just taking a job because it's what you need to do. It's what you need to do to yeah. pay bills. Yeah, that's right. So I um, yeah, I'm just gonna dive right into actually this other part that just as you were talking, I was thinking because you said you know my mom, my dad aren't gonna pay the bills. It's so interesting because when I thought about work, 
right? Again, I thought about making a living and I thought about stability. Like I remember saying once I had a boyfriend in high school whose dad was a salesperson mm. and, um, you know, they would go through the inevitable, you know, like the inevitable ebbs and flows when you're self-employed, right? You know, like it's feast or famine. Um, and I remember saying to my mom, I will never work for myself. Like, you know what I mean? It was just like, what I want is like this kind of like, I would never want to go through that stress of the up and downs. And so it, it makes me laugh a lot that I do this work, but it's really, um, I'm curious, I'm thinking, I'm just thinking out loud here. I'm curious how much of that viewpoint was about class and being raised without enough and how much was kind of, uh, in some ways a racial legacy. You know, I've shared with you that my grandfather, mm. um, got his degree, his undergraduate degree in chemistry, and then couldn't find a job as an African-American man in the South, in the American South. And so he moved up north, as many, many, many people did, moved up north in the kind of great migration there and worked at a steel mill for the rest of his life, right? Chemistry degree, worked at a steel mill and a kind of hard labor for the rest of his life. Um, And so I don't know that, I'm curious how that impacted me. Like you do the job and also, you know, my mom, Like my mom for her whole life has had, or, you know, she just retired, but had a job that she was good at that like paid the bills, but it wasn't what her passion was. Right. She's an artist. So I, it's, um, I'm just wondering how much of it is like legacy of class and race and personality. Right. Let's be straight up here. Like your mom's a financial controller. Right. As we're talking about money. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, sure. That Ryan that was like. Right, financial controller, FCO, right? Wasn't she? Like, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, she was a controller and then a CFO. Yeah, CFO. CFO, mm-hmm. there we go. Thank yeah, you. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, no, no. My mom was serious about money, <laughs> but that's not what her passion was. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I um, I don't think I was serious about money for a long time. And, uh, mm. and, um, and, and it took me getting into massive debt and, mm. um, and, then, and then having to pay that back to wake up, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I've got lots of stories about my financial wastefulness that are directly connected to my privilege that, I mean, I'm slightly too ashamed to tell you about on the call right now. Maybe we'll have to do it privately and then I'll feel courageous enough to do it on the podcast or maybe not, you know. Um, but like, yeah, I think it, I, I absolutely think it's a product of um, my initial attitude to money was absolutely a product of my class and the school I was at, you know, mm. like everybody was wicked wealthy at the school like yeah i was one of the because i'd received my grandfather had saved money and then set it aside right mm-hmm. for me to go to this particular school in england so i get trotted off to this boarding school in england and uh and the bills are all paid for and we're getting an old boy scholarship because both my dad and my uncle had been there and my other granddad had been bursa there right so it's like a whole thing yeah yeah, and uh, and I went to the same boarding house as my dad, right? So I got sent into the same. So there's a not just the school, but the particular boarding house you get sent to. Yeah. There's a lineage of that, and um, but I but you know I wasn't one of the wealthiest kids there. You know, like I had a polyester mm-hmm. jacket that my mum sewed the badge onto, which was like profoundly embarrassing because people all had like the fancy wool jackets. I guess they were with the crest, yeah, and yeah. blazoned in them and hand sewn on into the, you know, and like, I remember there was a girl who had been to my prep school who went to the same, went to the same upper school as me. And I just got all the hand-me-down clothes from my brother. And eventually mm-hmm. one time she was like, you know, she pulled me aside outside the science class or something. It's one of those memories you have. And she was like, you know, I think you need to uh, get, get a new pair of trousers. No one's really oh. wearing tri- trousers that tight anymore. <laughs> Oh, oh, 
<laughs> but it's like oh. so like so it's this hilarious thing where like like wealth is a relative thing too yeah right the five, the five pounds a week i got for pocket money was you know nothing compared yeah. to the majority of other people who were at my school so it's, right. it's just it's fascinating isn't it so interesting Right. But because no one else around me had a lot of respect for money, I did everything I could to try and like wheedle. I'd like, you know, get you'd get shit to go and get money from the uh, to go to. I don't know. What was it? There was something there was some shop we were able to go to in the town and like we'd be picking up maybe some medicine or something. And then you'd get shits from the matron or from the housemaster to be able to do it. But they also sold sweets, you know, mm. so you just like you'd get the chit for your medicine and then you'd like like put in like a whole bunch of sweets. I wasn't respecting my parents' money. They got a bill yeah, for that yeah. at the end of the year, right? Oh my gosh. But I just like yeah. pile whatever on it I could because yeah. I had no concept of that really um, until my early to mid twenties. Money. I mean, money. it's a big deal. I was thinking about how like it, in this season of my life, uh, I'm thinking about it again in a different way. You know, again, it's like, you know, we mm. talk about layers, right? Like, so you kind of like, you get your lessons in your early 20s, and then you're building your family and there are different lessons there. And then uh, a couple of years ago, did I tell you this? I took I took a cat class with yeah. Caitlin Frost, our yeah. friend Caitlin, yeah, yeah, yeah. around yeah. working with your limiting beliefs around money. Yeah. It was fantastic. It was yeah. so good. And, um, and because of my own background, kind of of you know, at least the, the first five years of my life. I mean, we lived in pretty, pretty abject poverty, right? So yeah. just like maybe not always enough to eat kind of yeah. uh, thing. Um, and then after that, it became different, but we were certainly very, very working poor. Um, and until, you know, kind of my mom, you know, lived the dream and rose up and all those things. And then, you know, uh, but uh I was thinking about when I entered that class, one of the things she did was she had you write down all of your beliefs about poor people. <clears throat> and I, you know, like you, you just write them, right? Like just like, and so I just wrote them, but there was no surprise there. And I've always thought, oh yeah. I mean, like there's a part of me that's scared about being poor again. And so as I wrote these down, like these thoughts didn't surprise me, right? I mean, it was a good exercise. It was helpful, right? But then the next week, oh, she had us write down our thoughts about rich people. And those thoughts were <laughs> shocking to me. Shocking. It was just like, <gasps> who am I? I am a person who has these kind of mean, hateful thoughts. I just had no, it was just like, just had no idea that those thoughts were like working in the back of my head. Mm -hmm. Right. And just mm -hmm. like completely unconscious. And what it, what was really interesting about that was it actually made me see that how much value I place on struggling around money hmm. because then that means you're not rich and you don't want to be rich because you have all these terrible thoughts about rich people. Mm -hmm. So as long as, you know what I mean? So it was like, oh, it was like so intense, Tim. It was really, really great. And I'm fine that I, you know, at this kind of part of my life again, where I'm just like really diving deep back into like money and what are my beliefs mm -hmm. about money and what do I need? Um, all of those, un, you know, we talked about limiting beliefs maybe last time or the time before that. Um, and like, they're, they're right there. They're, I'm working at a different level, right? But yeah. they're right there. And so, of course, choosing then to do this work where, right. you know, <laughs> where you're choosing the amount you work, you're setting your prices every time, right? Like every time is a negotiation in some ways. I mean, we have our set prices, but, you know, um, uh, that money stuff is right front and center in our daily life. 
All right, look, I've got lots of questions and then I want to throw some thoughts in. You do? Yeah, totally. Um, were you worried about money when you were growing up as a kid? Was that like a constant worry for you? As a, just as a kid, were you involved in that concern as well? Consci- I mean, maybe, probably unconsciously, yeah, yeah, yeah. probably, for sure, right? Unconsciously, for sure. Unconsciously, yeah. for sure. I think, was I worried about money? I would not say that as a worry I carried. I was very aware uh, in some of the same ways that you, you were, that we didn't have as much as other people. Yeah. Very conscious about that, especially kind of in my teenage years. I think in, you know, because by the time we were five, we were more stable. Yeah. Um, I think I felt my mom's worry about money. And I think I always had an awareness of, uh, an awareness of lack is what I would mm. say. I don't know that I carried a worry about that, but I think I carried an awareness of it. Do you think growing up, like I'm just going to use your language, right? So yeah. growing up in uh, abject poverty and having a worry about lack, do you think that influences or has influenced um, like your entrepreneurship, how you go oh. about making money, how you feel about asking for money, um, your, the, your ability to take risks that are associated with money? Mm-hmm. Like, like, can you just, t- just give me a little window into your world there? Then I want to share a little bit of what it's been like for me on the other side of that. Yeah, I'd love that. So I want to say yes to everything you said. I think Mm. it absolutely impacts. I think um, less so as I try to carry more consciousness around it, right? And less so as I work with you, frankly, uh, as we work more together and I uh, am with you in negotiations, right? So that's just, it's also nice to be partner with someone as you're negotiating those kind of things. I think it has been an underlying anxiety that has fueled my saying yes to some work that in hindsight, like I'm too busy for, I think it's contributed to my overwork, right? Mm. I think it's contributed to an overly full calendar. Um, uh, and for sure negotiating, I have, especially when we, when I first was out on my own, mm. like just like a sense of being able to ask for what I needed mm. and then beginning to work with partner partners who were, I was like, oh, well, yeah, I'm going to ask for what I need. And now I feel quite confident kind of asking for what I think I need. But absolutely, I think that kind of like, again, it's and it's also that kind of hustle struggle mentality, right? If I'm not hustling, if I'm not struggling just a little bit, then, you know, that means something about, you know, my willingness to work hard or my worth. So for sure, I think it pervades every, it has pervaded every part of it. And I think it's probably just in the last several years that I've tried to get a real handle on that and some ease and some, and you know, frankly, and this is, um, you know, this is reflective of the level of uh, financial privilege I have now. It's a lot easier to take yeah. risks and to say no and to say, well, that will work out or I'm just going to give it a try and we'll see how it goes when every year you're making it pretty well. Right? right. And so that's been the case for, you know, several years now. So I'm just in a, a far different place. So some of those things are operating in me or, uh, or maybe they're not operating in me in the same way just because of the level of financial privilege I now have. Yeah, I mean, we do things within our company like allocate particular streams of income for investment in the business. You know, So we generally look at our online courses. Um, there's particular clients who we'll take on specifically because we're going to take mm-hmm. that money and we're going to dedicate it towards doing a podcast, developing online right. courses, rebranding the website, right? Uh, supporting right. operations within the business. You know, I mean, there's like, there's things we deliver, you know, we have a freedom 
to take to look at certain pieces of income in the business and then reallocate them. And it's not a large percentage yes. of the income, Mm-mm. but it is some of it. Mm-mm. You know, we're not having to plow all of that back into our families, which is quite an incredible place to be. Right. Are you going to answer some of those questions for yourself? Like, how do you think your background impacts your entrepreneurship? I think I think I felt I think I have generally felt an enormous freedom around entrepreneurship. And uh, because mm. I had a financial safety net in play and yeah. uh, and uh, and it and it's given me a lot of freedom now that it had that hasn't resulted in apathy so like the whole system mm. the whole system of education that i went through was about keeping you busy from the very early morning to the very late at night right and so like absolutely oh. like, like the whole thing is okay. driven towards productivity to the point where you don't feel right it's kind of set up mm. to be like busy 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 but it's like thomas the tank engine you know you're only valuable wow. if you're a productive engine you know and so like wow. you're set up like that so it's preparing you for it you know that that type of leadership so so the so the neuro, huh. so the neurosis around busyness and productivity mm-hmm. and being useful is like and being needed is like huge. Mm-hmm. That's all that's all in there, but in a very different way and, and from a very different source, I think. Yeah. Um, but uh yeah, I mean I've always felt a certain amount of freedom. So like when we started the company in the Netherlands, you know, some of my um uh grandparents' trust helped fund that, you know. Like, yeah, yeah. We took money. Yeah. Both my brother and my, both my brother and myself took money from our inheritance and threw it in to kickstart the company in the Netherlands, right? And then when I moved to Canada, I was able to pull out that starting money and use that to buy the property in Canada, right? And so, uh, and so that's been the that's been the basic. So, th- so there's been a level of financial security there. When I wanted to go to Japan, because I had a girlfriend um, uh, who was based over there, and I went over to Japan to live and work for a year, like the family was like, that's an, that's an investment in his education. And they paid for my flights, right? And gave me wow. a bit of money to set me up to go there for one of the most transformative yeah. experiences of my life, living a year in Japan, mm. you know? Um, so there's been multiple times, you know? So when I did completely lose when i went feral for a few years when i quit theater school Mm -hmm. and like you know and just decided i was going to live for the experience of living you know i also mbna got in touch with me and offered me a credit card with a ten thousand pound limit i was like (laughs) and being a young man coming from considerable privilege i was like you're giving me ten thousand pounds for free awesome right and so i just spent it you know i spent it and like i put it on credit card and i took all my friends to hotels and uh we drove across front i mean we just did all kinds of ridiculous shit and i didn't spend it all to be fair um uh but um i just went a bit mental with it and then i went back to mum and dad and i was like oh you know i've fucking got huge debts now what am i gonna do i'm moving to germany at this point and uh mum and dad were like well we're not gonna pay it back for you but what we'll do is we'll use family money to pay off the debt to the credit card, right? And then you have to pay mm-hmm. us back at market rate rather than on the credit card mm. rate, right? And so then I spent the next three years every single month paying, you know, uh, it was something like 35% of my income every single month went to wow. paying back my family. And it would have been basically you know it, it knocked a significant amount of time that i would have been paying that debt off yeah and so and so that was like a good teacher you know it was a good teacher at that that moment mm-hmm. but like but I, yeah but, but i've always had this sense of freedom yeah right around yep mm-hmm. i've always felt like there's enough money you know and katie yeah katie my wife also just she's just like what the come on you know she's called me out on it before as well but like that I, I haven't i haven't grown up 
feeling inhibited around wealth. Even when, mm. even when we first moved to Canada, and uh, and mum and dad didn't help us out at all then, and uh, you know, I was you know I was making a very small amount of money, and I didn't know how we were going to pay the bills. And what I did at that mm-hmm. point was I wrote to everybody in my global network and said, "I'm struggling to pay the bills. I need help." Yeah, you guys know what I can do. Would anybody offer me some work? You know, which is actually how I ended up in Columbus, Ohio on the Our Optimal Health Project. Whoa, really? Yeah, yeah. I wrote I wrote to like a group nice. of like nine or 10 people in the kind of global network. Tolkien and Phil were on that list. And I said, um, you know, I've just moved to Canada. I'm starting this learning center. Um, I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills. I've got no network here. I'm traveling to Europe to pay the bills, to do gigs every now and then. But like, I, I need help. And, uh, and I said, is there any place that I don't want a job for the sake of it, but you know what I can do? Is there any place I could be? Yeah. You could support me. And, and uh, I think Tolkien Phil obviously had a back backdoor conversation and then came back to me and said, actually, we do need someone to step in and help us on a couple of things around this project. Would you be available on these dates? And I leapt at it, right? And um, Nice. So there's something, I mean, I think there's something in there about how to make a living. I think the asking for help thing is mm-hmm. an important lesson. That's great. I had no idea that's how you came to it. And I, you know, I feel like there's a part of me that's like, oh, what would that be like to just feel uninhibited around money? It's just like a different viewpoint, a different perspective, uh, certainly a different level of privilege. Like, but oh, I wonder what that allows you to do. Um, and I wonder what, you know, because there, there's also this piece for me around lack or not having enough or not, you know, uh, that I think taught me some really valuable lessons. Mm. And of course, I don't want my children to ever experience lack in that way. But I do have a question as they've been raised in a, in a different class than I was raised. Like mm. there is a part of me that's like, mm, how are they going to get some of those lessons? You know, how are they going to, you know, again, I'm trying to interrupt my own limiting belief around struggle. Like you have to struggle to have lessons. Like maybe you could actually have a beautiful life and have plenty of lessons. But um, it's it's just an interesting, Carl it's an I, interesting piece. My buddy Carl, who I love dearly, one of my oldest friends, you know, Carl. And 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 uh, mm-hmm. we were, I was talking to him and we were talking about some of the like highly abusive and traumatic experiences we've both gone through as a direct mm-hmm. result of our class, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, and and you know he was saying as well this this sense of like and me actually not he was saying me and him were talking about where are our kids going to get their grit from yeah mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. like if they don't go through situations as straight up horrific as the ones we went through where's their grit to survive where's their will to like mm. navigate the fucked upness of the world going to come from and how are they going to deal with all the shit you know and then of course <laughs> right right and, and like how are they going to be how are they going to be entrepreneurs in the face of like yeah. no again and again and again and like massive contracts disappearing and having you know right and, and um because they do they just come and go one minute you right. think you're sorted right. and the next week you're not you know and yeah, um that's right and, but of course I wouldn't wish any of my experiences on any of my kids. No. Those types of experiences. And those experiences have taught me something incredible. And so, you know, Carlos and I then end up in this conversation about, well, are we dependent on like trauma and abuse? (laughs) Right. Right. To get that level of grit and that level of determination and and that level of willingness to survive and make it, or what are the other ways we can instill that in our kids? Right. Um, and in the people we work with, you know, because they're ha- like, we've talked a lot about fragility, but that ability to be like, well, I, can, I know I can survive this, survive far worse. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, but I, I and not, but, and I just have to believe there's another way. <laughs> 
<laughs> to develop grit and integrity and determination besides horrific trauma. But I, I can feel myself, right? Like it's like, but I don't, I don't know it. I haven't experienced that, right? Like that's not my, I just kind of have to believe that that's the case and work for it for my kids, right? Right. I was thinking about, you know, if we talk about making a living in this way, so many people I know, but I don't think this, I don't think this is your experience. I'll ask, you know, for me, uh, how I started doing this work was like truly on the side. So I worked part-time. I was raising, you know, I was, I had one young child and, uh, was about to become pregnant and then became pregnant with my next child. Um, and I, but I had a part-time job. So I kind of did this like on the side mm. and things kind of just grew. And so for me, it was a little more, uh, oh yeah, I can, you know, I was working part-time. I can take this and work a couple more hours and, and things kind of really grew organically from there. But for the first, for the first year, maybe I had a part-time job that yeah. I was also doing as we did this work, but yeah. that wasn't the case for you, huh? Well, so I was just, what happened to me was in Dusseldorf in Germany and I spent I spent basically two and a half, three years there paying off this debt that I just told you about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got kind of connected. I was just getting connected into the world of Augusto Boal and theater and started training in that and learning that. And then I, and we moved into the Netherlands to start this company with my brother and Ariane, of which my brother mm-hmm. and I took some of our inheritance to be the kind of like launch capital for it, you know? Actually, a mm. similar kind of amount that we've used to launch the combined amount okay. was similar to what we put into the outside. And okay. um, and so then, uh, uh, but and, and so that money gave us, you know, there was some capital there, but it also bought me some time to just get yeah. the company going. Because my my yeah. brother and Aryan actually always had, had stronger lines of income than me at that point, right? And mm. I was really moving career. I was like, up, yeah, up, you know, jumping up. And so, but we also got some money from the Council of Europe, I think, or the European Union to support the first kind of like eight months of my involvement. Uh, and so okay. I was getting, I was getting, you know, kind of basically on, there was an entrepreneurship grant that we secured in Europe that kind of like helped pay for my involvement and cover off like a basic salary for me for mm. the first eight months, which was amazing. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. And, and in the Netherlands, companies of our size got a massive tax break in their launch in their first three years. So it was a shock after the first after the first three years where suddenly your tax jumps by a significant amount. But it gave us a lot of it there was a real I felt like we got there was a lot of support right mm, both uh, yeah. structurally and institutionally for small yeah. small creative progressive businesses like ours to get going and then you right. throw into the mix mate you throw into the mix like Tolkien Muller Bob Stilger Margaret Wheatley right all at our yeah. backs right Margaret Wheatley yeah. turning up like I was saying on one of the other podcasts Margaret Wheatley turning up to run a program for us and refusing payment but like, there's yeah. no doubt that most of the people were there to see Margaret Wheatley. They weren't really coming because yeah. like me and my brother and I am running a program. No one had heard of from us, right? And so, and so, you know, and, and Tolka did a similar thing. He'd come into the Netherlands and he was just available to mentor me and Bob yeah. as well, you know, in a, in, a, in a different way, a lot more personal way, actually. And, and so I think, I think there was kind of like a whole set of circumstances that created the conditions for that. And it enabled us to do a lot of work for free early on, mm, mm. right? I remember doing like massive festivals for free. Like I didn't wow. need to claim a paycheck wow. because I had sponsorship from the EU to do that. You know, yeah. it allowed me to delegate, you know, to develop that, de- you know, celebrating diversity was this one of the first kind of 
inverted commas product lines I developed with Luke and Cannon and Rachel Smith, which was a combination between dialogue, kind of like participatory theater and theater therapy, you know, and uh, community music. And we were going out and we were doing kind of like workshops using music and dialogue and theater to get people engaged around issues that matter to them. And like we were able to develop that with some kind of freedom because yeah. there was some kind of financial support there. And there's just, there just seemed to be a lot more support in Europe for people to be yeah. doing these kind of creative things that, than I experience here, certainly in Nova Scotia, and I can't speak for the rest of yeah. Canada. Yeah, I feel like that's true. I was thinking of another friend who got a, a kind of a fellowship for a year to go and learn and explore, and she's from Scotland. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know that those things exist much in North America. If they do, I don't know where they are. And I was thinking, you know, what really allowed me to, well, what allowed me to work part-time, frankly, and then to start consulting mm. on the side was that I had a partner with a decent salary and good benefits. Right. It was just yeah. like straight up to not deny any of that. It wasn't just, you know, um, now it was interesting, I think, particularly for me is um, I stopped. I, I said when I was eight months pregnant or so, I was just like, I'm going to leave my part time job and I'm going to I think I have enough work for this next six months and you know I'm having a baby mm. and it was always maybe a transition thing so when people come to me and say kind of like what was your five-year plan or how did you you know like did you get you know like two years of money in the bank and then you went for it I was like oh no no that's never been my possibility I just kind of said oh I think I have enough work for the next six months oh I think I have enough yeah. work for the next six months like that was kind of how I did it, it was kind of a step-by-step -step. but then my partner actually lost his job when the baby was nine months old oh that's right yeah, yeah of course uh-huh and it was like oh uh, and I, I remember saying to him, do you think I should go back and get a real job now? Like, is that what mm. this is calling for? Right. Because, of course, we mm. didn't have benefits. We didn't have that's how things are structured here. And he was like, you know, you said you wanted to uh, work less and do this until the baby was one. So let's just let's just have that be our plan. Right. That that's mm. we'll just stay with the plan for the next 90 days. Right. And see what happens or, you know, four months, whatever it was. And um, and then it was like, you know, I kind of looked up and I was like, OK, I have enough work for the next six months and I've never worked mm. for the next six months. And it was really not a grand plan kind of thing. It was like this is working now. And then I, when she was around three years old, I remember thinking, well, I guess this is what I'm doing. You know, you know what I mean? It was almost yeah. like I kind of just like, oh, okay. this this is this is I'm making a living. Look at me making a living doing this thing. I oh guess God, this I is what a I'm job. doing. Exactly. I made, it. Exactly. <laughs> I made my job. This is so weird. <laughs> exactly. That was exactly. It was just, I, you know, because we had to decide whether to send her to preschool or not. Or, you know, and I remember actually making that decision. And so for me, you know, yeah. it started off and I think I think we've alluded to this. But for me, it started off doing things like running a cafe for someone or running a half day and then running a day retreat. And then, you know, and then, and you by know, cafe, you mean a world cafe, which is a process, not going out and getting a job running. Right. A cafe. Yeah, yeah. 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 Running particular discrete processes. Right. That's yeah. absolutely how it started. And then it was like, oh, you know, we think, you know, we'll have you for a day or, you know, and it just really grew very organically until um, I was doing a three day kind of what art of hosting training, like three days going away. Um, and, and training people for three days, which was kind of like my my biggest gigs at that point. Right. Mm. You know, there would be half days here or there. Um, and we got a call from someone here locally who was like, I want to use these processes and I want to build a movement. And so can you help mm. us do that? And it was Amazing. like, yeah, I mean, we said, yeah, and just had every bit of knowledge that we had no idea how to do that, but we were going to give it a try. And so that particular leader 
just took a chance, but he knew he was taking a chance and he knew he wanted to do something different. And so that started, that was my very first long-term work. And we worked in that project seven years. So a couple of thoughts. One is that we, I think we have to bear in mind that our field didn't exist right? Until yeah. the early 2000s, yeah. right? I mean, what there was, was there was facilitators and there were people who were practitioners of particular methodologies like open space, future search, world cafe, appreciative inquiry. And what the art of hosting network did was like basically say, there's an architecture under all of these different participatory yeah. processes, theater yeah. of the oppressed, right? There's, there's an architecture under all of these. And what if we could articulate that architecture, you know? So in many ways, both of us have been part of building our field, yeah. right? Right? Oh, for building sure. the you know in, or building the sector right yeah. and 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 so I think that's quite an incredible thing to bear in mind as as well as we as we as we think about this and then and then I, I and also I wonder like when I when I first moved to Nova Scotia in Canada um, where there was none of those kind of institutional supports and mm-hmm. I had no relationships I just you know I had um, made a, a very large decision based upon a purely instinctive feeling, like I felt called mm-hmm. was, was the language I used mm. at the time, you know. And, uh, yeah, my, and my dad was like, that sounds a little like crazy to me. <laughs> like the company had just, <laughs> like Engage had just like begun to like really wow. be solid and like, you yeah. know, and, that, and I remember dad being like, what are you doing? Like it's just beginning to really yeah. be stable this thing. Now you're packing it all in and going over there where you know, you know. Wow. And um, anyway, that's what I did. Um, uh, and I remember when I got here, you know, there was, uh, um, I, I, had, I flew back to Europe to do some jobs. Even when we started the company in the Netherlands, I still did some teaching English work, which is what I'd been doing before to get us through the first months. But wow. um, I remember being very, very careful about what my first job was going to be in Nova Scotia when I got here. Cause I was like, if I'm going to, if I'm going to take a piece of work, I think it's going to be defining. Oh, okay. You know? All right. And, okay. Uh, and so I was really careful about the first one that I took feeling like whatever those first few gigs are, they're actually going to set something of a pattern for me. You know, in terms of how people perceive me, in terms of um, the type of thing I'm going to get invited into. So I actually waited for the right kind of gig to come along. Um, And then actually there was a there was an an event. um, I think it was Envision Halifax brought me in for and it was like a community event up in Halifax, 130 people. Um, and, and it was a really good first gig. Like it set the tone, mm, you know, nice. and we got to use open space and world cafe and a good check-in and a good speaker. And it just gave a really good showcase of what I was able to do. Yeah. And I think I even did it for nothing. Ah, I see. Right? Yeah. I think I even did it for nothing, yeah. but I knew it was going to be a tone setter. Mm. Right. Um, and the visibility that was attached to it was really, really good. So I think there is something about, um, but although in the short term, and this may just be my come from my privilege, so it's which is why I want to run it by you. Like, did you do a similar thing? But like in the short term, actually saying no to some work can benefit your business in the long term because um, if you if you pick and choose earlier on some of the highly visible gigs you take, rather than just taking everything, it actually begins to build your reputation because you know, as Uhtred of Babenberg says in the <laughs> Bernard Cornwall books. <laughs> The Saxon Chronicles. Uh, please bring right? it. Reputation is all in this industry. Mm. Reputation is all, yeah. and uh, um, and so so like how you build and construct your reputation is critical to your ability to succeed and generate wealth doing something you love. If this is what you love, yeah, yeah. So I had none of that. Let me just say, um, I didn't. I didn't have that kind of forethought. It was more like, oh, that sounds interesting. 
In fact, that one of the people I used to work with said, Tizzy, you're like a butterfly. Like, oh, that's shiny. Oh, that's shiny. And you just kind of go after what's interesting to it's you. It's good that that's changed um, and you're not like that at all anymore, it's, you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so, but I did get quite lucky. I did get quite lucky at the beginning, right? I mean, like just to name, like actually just good fortune. Mm. Uh, it's not that I, I'm not saying anything about like, not that I didn't work hard or that I'm not talented, but like just straight up good fortune um, to be in a community where some of the practices were beginning to be established, where people were hungry for people, for practitioners and people who could practice with them. I mean, I really was able to take advantage of that, that, you know, in the very first year, that I left my job, you had me in to a world-class team yeah. for the Kellogg Foundation, yeah. right? Massive Who gets gig. to start there? Massive gig, wasn't it? Right? Like, it's the biggest job I'd ever done That's at the time. That's where I started in terms of like yeah. first kind of big, you know what I mean? And then I was on a team with those of you who had been there in the early 2000s. I mean, this was 2007. It wasn't super late into the game. But, you know, so uh, I did actually become and like you said, it was an emerging field. So there weren't a ton of us either. No. You know, it was like a really, I think, smaller, tight knit. When you say you send an email to nine or 10 people, I'm like, yeah, because that's kind of like that's who there was yeah. at that point doing this work. Yeah. And so, you know, I directly benefited from access to those folks who were making a living doing this, yeah. right? Um, I didn't, and in, in a way that I totally and completely made it up on my own uh, because I didn't necessarily like look to you or Phil and say like, oh, I want that path. So I did make up my own path, but I also had people around me who were doing yeah. it. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't, it didn't feel like it was an impossible thing to do. So um, that's also quite interesting. But no, I, there was no thinking strategically for me on like first gig or I just happened to, yeah, first gig Kellogg Foundation with a world-class team. Yeah, that'll work. Boom. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> exactly. I definitely feel, I mean, we should probably wrap it up soon, but I, def I definitely feel that um, I haven't actually been that strategic about the emergence of my career. You know, like it's been mm -hmm. actually driven significantly by the invitations I've got or the work I've done. Like yeah. one piece of work has generated mm -hmm. other pieces of work. And that's still true. Mm -hmm. It's just, uh, you know, 20 odd years in now, there's an, there's enough work generated that I find that we're able to pick and choose which things we go for. Right? Ah, but that definitely absolutely. wasn't always true. No, no, no. All but right. it is first job choose. First job, what was your first job? And then we'll do some Oh, did I not say it? I was teaching and, uh, gymnastics to little tiny, like oh, yeah. to preschoolers. And um, and it was just all sorts of fun because preschoolers love to throw their bodies places, right? So it's not like they Wicked. have no fear. They have, and you could just, I just remember it being so much fun because it was like, it was truly, How old were you? oh, I think I was probably 15. I don't think I was actually really kind of legally allowed to work in the way that, you know, because my first yeah. like, paid paid job get a work permit kind of thing was i think at 16 i was a bag of groceries but before that i did preschool gymnastics which was great yeah my first kind of job that i received money for was i was about 11 and i and i went and every weekend um after in, instead on the i'd go to the local wildlife park and um i was in charge of the tiger cubs <gasps> what uh, a wildlife park yeah the wildlife park did get shut down oh. for its treatment of animals oh <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, but um, but it was kind of, I mean, you mean the fact that I turned up as an 11-year-old and they put me in charge of the tiger cubs would be an indicator of the level of responsibility <laughs> of the place, I think. 
nonetheless. Good point. Um, that was my first ever job. But then, you know, but then uh, when I started working, it was a lot more kind of like uh, waiting and uh, mm-hmm. canning factories and stuff like that. But my first ever job was looking after. I've got a picture somewhere. I'll show oh it to you. Oh, my gosh. I would love. That yeah, sounds like an 11-year-old dream job. It was amazing, dude. It was amazing. Yeah. Maybe that's why. This is working. I'm in. Exactly. You know? It was amazing yeah. for you. Maybe not the yeah. Tigers, but for you. You got a song for us this week? I do. Absolutely. Like sugar. <laughs> Shaka Khan. <laughs> Let's do it. Right? I mean, you, I mean, you know, listen to this and try not to move your body. Okay? Mm. This is the remix. It's gorgeous. Enjoy it. And like we've been talking about money. So like sugar. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Great. All right, friend. Are you bringing some poetry into the game here tonight? I have a poem called Work Sometimes, and it's by Mary Oliver. Um, and so she's a she's a poet that writes about nature a lot. I enjoy her. Many people, many people know about Mary. So I was sad all day, and why not? There I was, books piled on both sides of the table, paper stacked up, words falling off my tongue. The robins had been a long time singing, and now it was beginning to rain. What are we sure of? Happiness isn't a town on a map, or an early arrival, or a job well done, but good work ongoing, which is not likely to be the trifling around with a poem. Then it began raining hard, and the flowers in the yard were full of lively fragrance. You've had days like this, no doubt. And wasn't it wonderful finally to leave the room? Ah, what a moment. As for myself, I swung the door open, and there was a wordless, singing world, and I ran for my life. Thanks, Juice. Yeah, I just love her. So that's it for this episode of Find the Outside the Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. We are there. Come find us and tell your friends. New episodes on the podcast are available every second Tuesday. Tuesday, get it? Good day. Um, um, that's right. <laughs> if you'd like to get in touch with us about something you've heard on the show, you can reach us at podcast at findtheoutside.com. Yeah, because jokes about your name and the days of the week, not part of your life at all. No. Uh, you can find links to any of the resources, <laughs> poems, books, songs we mentioned during the show in the show notes. Go check it out. And uh, many thanks to Mark Coffin at Soundguard Studios and uh, Gary Blakemore for the music. Absolutely. You can find the song we played in today's show. I will not do Tim's impression. Uh, And every song we played in previous shows on the playlist we created in Spotify, just search Find the Outside on Spotify and we have a playlist there for you. Have a good one.